Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. In Persia, while Babylon was this great empire, Persia is looking to take over the world and become the next greatest empire. And the king of Persia, Cyrus, he became king in 549 B.C. And he began to take over more and more of the empires that was north and east of Babylon territory. While Cyrus is growing in power and Persia is growing in power, Nebuchadnezzar dies and is replaced by Belshazzar. King Belshazzar was feeling very, very comfortable with the inheritance he got from Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom, the empire. Everything was going so well under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar thought that he didn't have to do very much to keep it going so well. So he got lazy and he let his army grow weak. In 539 B.C., Cyrus and the Persians started heading towards Babylon. Belshazzar got panicky and he turned to his army, which was in a mess, So Belshazzar got more panicky and became terrified. And in his terror of losing this wonderful kingdom that he had inherited, Belshazzar throws a wild party, a wild banquet, an orgy, to drown his fears in lots of booze and wild women. And as part of this party, he looks for whatever golden drinking cups he can find, and he finds locked away in this storage room the drinking cups that had been used in the sacred vessels that had been used in Jerusalem in the temple of Yahweh. So he has these brought in and they're having their orgies with these sacred cups of God. And while this is going on, over there in the wall, a hand appears and starts writing some kind of, you heard of speaking in tongues, this was writing in tongues. No one could understand what it was saying. Needless to say, poor Belshazzar got even more scared. (laughs) After picking himself up off the floor, Belshazzar cried for his mommy. Help, mommy! She comes rushing in and says, There's an old magician that I heard about who can interpret things that no one else can. His name is Daniel. So go and fetch him. I'm sure he's going to be able to help you. So Daniel looks at that and goes, yeah, I can read that. Sure, I know what that means. And the message was this. God has weighed Belshazzar's worth and found him wanting. That very night, King Cyrus and the Persians come in and conquer Babylon. During this time frame, amongst the Israelites, there was someone who was sorting through the scrolls written by the prophets that went all the way back to Solomon's days. And this someone, whoever this unnamed person was, took all of the writings, all the scrolls, and must have been a very organized person, put them all into two groupings of books. And this is how the books of one and two kings came about. This is during the exile in Babylon. This is just to give you an idea of when things happened. The book of First and Second Kings was written at this time because someone found all these scrolls and put it together in a coherent form. The people were then becoming more and more informed about what God had been warning them of, why he had been warning them, what God had been commanding, what God's ways were, and they became determined never to break the covenant again. 
we've heard that before, right? But in order to live in the middle of a corrupt world without being influenced by it was going to require the toughest of faiths. So God gave Daniel four visions to encourage future generations. The visions of Daniel are called apocalyptic, just like the visions given to John in the book of Revelations. Apocalyptic writings means that it's revelation from God written in symbolic pictures. The first vision that Daniel got was of four wild animals, and these represented four different kingdoms. Historically, it turned out to be that those kingdoms were Babylon, Persia, then Greece, and then the Roman Empire, in that order. And out of this fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, a ruler was going to come who boasted of his power. God was going to judge him, and he'd be slain. And then one like a son of man would appear. And he received from God the authority to rule. He was worshipped by all the nations in an everlasting kingdom. What's that everlasting kingdom? Christianity. The kingdom of God isn't just heaven, it's also here on earth. And this one like the son of man in the vision is called the true son of Adam. The vision says that he's been promised since the very, very beginning, way back in Genesis... And that he was more than just a son of David who was the king of one nation. He was the king of all. That's in the book of Daniel. That's the first vision. The second vision is about one of the kings of the third kingdom, Greece. At this point in time when Daniel was writing down these visions, Greece was just beginning to be noticed as a power. And in this vision, Greece was going to war against God and his people in such an appalling way what Daniel saw in this vision was so appalling that it sent him to bed sick for days. In the third vision, it happened just after Cyrus from Persia took over Babylon. Daniel had been studying Jeremiah's writings, and he calculated the 70-year exile was about to end, and he knew the time was just about up. So he fasted and begged for God's forgiveness for the sins that had exiled the people. And the way he prayed that was this way. He said, Lord, forgive us for our sins. Now, Daniel, remember, was someone who had not sinned. Oh, yeah, he had some little sins, sure. But he was not committing the same sins as the rest of the Israelites. He did not turn away from God. He loved God. He was loyal to God, even down to eating the kosher foods, while everybody else was saying, who cares? And yet, he prayed, Lord, forgive us. For the sins that we've committed. The importance of that kind of prayer was driven home to me many years ago. I planted pretty little flowers and put up pretty little white picket fences next to the flowers. And the kids in the neighborhood came along with their bicycles and rode right over it. Never mind, there's a sidewalk that they can go on. And I was getting increasingly annoyed at the neighbors for letting their kids be raised as they were. And for not reprimanding. It's kind of like the way Jonah fell. Why don't you punish your kids? But they broke the flowers and they broke the fence. So I go to the store, a little peeved. I go to the store, buy a replacement section of fence, stick it in the ground. And somebody comes along and bikes over that and destroys that again. And my anger is increasing. And I'm saying, God, I don't like living here. God, why don't you do something to these kids? Why don't you convince those parents to raise their kids better? I keep losing my flowers and fences. 
And there was other vandalism that was being done. That was the one that was most direct against me, but who knows what it might escalate to. At least in my mind, I was worried about that. And I kept praying for their conversion. I kept praying for God to change them. And nothing happened. Things just got more tense inside of me. That's the only thing that happened. And one day I was outside clipping the hedges on the side of the house. And there were the kids running by with their foul language. And I'm going, God, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you making any changes? And God kind of tapped me on the shoulder and reminded me about this story of Daniel. How Daniel prayed, Lord, forgive us. And I said, but God, I'm not like those people. I'm not guilty of those crimes. Why should I ask for forgiveness? And God said, Daniel wasn't guilty either. I said, okay, God, you win. You can't argue with God and win, you know. So I prayed, Lord, forgive us for being this way. Forgive my neighbors. Forgive me. Forgive us. Peace came into my heart the moment I did that. The neighbors didn't change. They still wrecked my stop putting up little picket fences. I changed. I had been saying, God, why aren't you changing anybody? And God said, I can change you. You want to change? When I said, forgive us, God changed me by giving me peace. And when I had that peace, I was able to see that what my sin had been was a sin of superiority over those other people. Well, I'm the good Christian, and if only you'd become Christian, you'd become good too. You know, I'm better than you because I'm Christian. And God said, that's a sin. Maybe you have advantages over them because you're a Christian, but that's not something to hold against them. That's something to pity them for. There's a lot of value in praying, forgive us. The neighbors didn't change, but I no longer was bothered by what was going on there. As our kids got older, we decided that we didn't want to raise our kids in that environment, and God made it possible for us to move out of there into a much nicer neighborhood. And you know who else sets an example of that? Jesus. He took the blame, even though he was totally innocent. And we're supposed to follow in his footsteps. Okay, Daniel does this prayer of asking for forgiveness. And then an angel comes to Daniel and gives him the third vision. In this vision, the angel shows Daniel that Jerusalem and the temple in it are going to be rebuilt. And an anointed king would come. Who is that anointed king? Jesus. And he would be killed. How was he killed? The crucifixion. There would be a war. Who was the war with? It's a little harder of a question. The Romans. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And in this war, the temple would be destroyed. That was part of the vision, and that's what happened in 70 A.D. And there would come horrible abominations. How has that been fulfilled? I think it's being fulfilled today. I think it's been down all through time. What kind of abominations are going on right in the temple now, so to speak? Right in the body of Christ. Abortions, Catholics who are professing that abortion is right, even priests, those who profess that homosexual activity is okay, Catholics saying that women should be priests, let's disobey the Pope and the teachings down through the centuries and let's form our own Catholic church. And the final part of this vision, justice would finally be inflicted on a false ruler. Who's the false ruler? 
We can never be sure with these apocryphal writings and the predictions of the future because it may have been fulfilled many times down through the centuries. But it probably also indicating the Antichrist to come that the book of Revelations mentions. A false ruler. Two years later, Daniel gets the fourth vision. In this, a warrior angel battles the spirit princes behind the earthly kingdoms. The spirit princes, the demons behind earthly kingdoms. A warrior angel, who's that? Michael. And these earthly kingdoms are fighting against God's people in this vision. The vision shows that when this is fulfilled, God's people are going to suffer horribly, but the people who know God will firmly resist. Will resist no matter how bad the sufferings get and will stay close to God. And then the end of the age comes after a cataclysmic turmoil, distress, disaster, whatever. And the dead will be raised to either eternal life or eternal shame. What does that sound like a description of? What Revelations talks about. Okay, getting back to the historical story. King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon. And now the subjects of Babylon are the subjects of Persia. And he has a different approach than the Babylon kings had had. His strategy to keep his subjects loyal to him and continuing to pay taxes and not fight against him and rebel and all that, to keep his subjects loyal, he wants them to be content. And in order to make the Jewish people content, he figures the best thing to do is to send them back to their homeland and help them rebuild their temple. He's being used as an instrument of God. He returns the religious artifacts that the previous kings of that territory had stolen. He returns these things. And he even finances the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. About 50,000 Jewish exiles return home. That's not everybody. The majority of the Jewish exiles had been born in Babylon and decided to stay there. They didn't care about their Jewish heritage or about Yahweh as much as they cared about their comfort. They wanted to stay where they were familiar. How many of us choose not to change or grow spiritually or get rid of an addiction or enter a new job or whatever because we don't like change? We want our comfort zones to stay comfortable. When Ralph and I were living up in New Jersey, being urged by God to move down here, one of the earlier temptations we had to overcome was the urge to stay where it was comfortable. Even though we complained about the cost of living, and we complained about the anti-Christian attitude our kids were facing in school, and we complained about a lot of things, it was more comfortable to stay with what was familiar. And God said to us, I want to get you out of your comfort zone because then you become more useful to me. And so that's why we ended up down here doing this. This return to Judah happened in 537 B.C. The people who did return to Judah were determined to rebuild their nation God's way. They had learned from the past. They settled into the old villages of Judah. They rebuilt the altar in Jerusalem. They resumed offering sacrifices the way the law prescribed. They planted their first crops. They gathered workmen and materials to rebuild the temple. 
But all of this took a lot of hard work, and they were used to being comfortable in Babylon. They weren't used to being pioneers. And there's a lot of work in rebuilding and in retilling soil that's been left untilled for a long time and, and so on, let alone also rebuilding the temple at the same time. Initially, the crops were poor. It took a while to get things going. And they were being ridiculed by the Samaritans, the people who had, the remnant who had been left in the Samaritan area. They were being ridiculed for the rebuilding of their temple. Remember, in Samaria, that was the replacement originally for Jerusalem. And after a while of putting up with the hard life, the poor crops, the ridicule, the Jewish people began to shift the priorities away from what they had originally done, putting it on rebuilding things God's way, and put it on themselves. Poor me. Look at this hard work. Look what the bullies are doing to me. Poor me. And for the next 16 years, they continued in that selfish poor me mode. So God says, uh-oh, here we go again. God has sent another prophet. And this prophet was Zechariah. And we have the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah was a young priest. And the people who were building the temple, rebuilding it, and losing interest in doing that, Zechariah's job was to give them encouragement, to keep them going through the visions that God gave him. What he saw in the visions that was of special note is that Joshua, remember, he's the one that led them into the promised land in the beginning, and Joshua also is the Hebrew form for what name? That's right. He saw Joshua dressed in high priestly robes. Here we go again with more foreshadowing of Jesus. And he saw Joshua bloodstained from the crimes of the people. He saw Joshua get those robes stripped off of him and replaced with clean robes. And then God promised to send the son of David. And in Zechariah 3, verse 9, God says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. What day was that? Good Friday. He saw Joshua crowned as king. He saw his high priest's office be combined with the ruling office, the office of authority, which under Moses' law was impossible. The priest and the rulers were two different classes. Now they're being combined in Jesus. And in Zechariah chapter 2, God says, I will live among you, and you will know that God Almighty has sent me. Now wait a minute here. This is God speaking. I will live among you and you will know that God Almighty has sent me. This is God sending God. Now at the time when this was being spoken, they didn't know how this was going to be made possible. But looking in hindsight, it was meant for the Jewish people to look back in those scriptures that they had all well memorized as proof that Jesus was the Son of God and was God himself. Because remember how the Jewish people doubted that Jesus really was God and called him a blasphemer? God also gave other visions to Zechariah to encourage the people. He predicted that a Davidic king, a king from the line of David, would triumph over oppressors as he rode on a donkey. And a donkey was a symbol of peace. So it's more than just a prediction of how Jesus was going to enter Jerusalem for his final victory. It's also talking about the kingdom of peace coming. Zechariah also says he's going to be a good shepherd. 
And it also says that he will reject the rebellious flock and its greedy false shepherds. And when Zechariah said that this will happen soon, the Jews thought that this meant in my lifetime. And when it didn't happen in their lifetime, whatever encouragement they had gotten out of these prophecies went bye-bye. They got lost. They lost their spiritual fervor. Now, Greece, that third kingdom that Daniel saw in his vision, Greece is growing in power. Xerxes becomes the king in 486. This is an interesting story, but I I hate to skim over it, but I'm going to have to, from the book of Esther. And I just want to touch enough of it to whet your appetite so that you take time sometime to read the book of Esther, because it's a neat story. It reads like a novel. Xerxes is a Persian king, and as Greece is growing in power, he gets nervous, and he tries to make himself feel better by holding a beauty pageant. And the way he gets the girls is he has his people go out and commandeer girls from throughout the empire. The winner of the contest, the prize, is to spend a night with the king in bed. But she would be able to have the privilege then of being the queen. All the rest of the girls who had been entered into this beauty pageant were to live the rest of their lives in his harem. One Jewish woman who was picked to be one of these contestants was named Esther. Esther won the contest. She had an uncle named Mordecai who had been raising her. He was one of the judges in Xerxes' kingdom. But one of Xerxes' officials named Haman hated the Jews. And he tricked Xerxes into issuing an edict against the Jews. Uncle Mordecai goes to his niece Esther and says, Look, you've got some kind of special privileges now with your husband. Talk to him about this edict. The result of that does save the Jews from this edict. God had a purpose behind what had happened to Esther, even though she didn't like getting snatched off the street to enter this contest. After Xerxes comes Artaxerxes in 458 B.C., Around this time, Nehemiah comes into the picture. Nehemiah has his book in the Old Testament. He was a trusted official of Artaxerxes. There was a revolt against Artaxerxes by the Jewish people. And Artaxerxes retaliated and demolished and burned a lot of Jewish property. And when Nehemiah heard of the destruction, he prayed and fasted for four months to beg God to do something. And as a result, God said, okay, you're it. You ever find yourself in a position of saying, here's what needs to get done. Okay, do it. God used him then to inspire the people to gather together and build a city wall around Jerusalem. Nehemiah brings to the people the concept of love to the business world, not greed. For example, he insisted that they should charge no interest on loans made to fellow Jews. And if a debt could not be repaid, he should treat it as a gift. Sounds to me a lot like Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see, the book of Ezra. Ezra was a Jewish priest who remained in Babylon, and he had led a second wave of the Jewish exiles going back to Judah. Ezra and Nehemiah got together and called everyone to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. And when they got all the people there for the party, this was the excuse to get them there, when they got them there, Ezra read to the people the books of Moses. 
It took six hours. The people wept because they realized that they had fallen far short of what God wanted. And while they were weeping, Nehemiah said, Stop it. This is a party. Celebrate. Because you're mourning. Now this sounds like one of the Beatitudes. The first one. Blessed are those who weep and mourn. Why? Nehemiah says, Celebrate because now you're moving towards holiness. Now you're going to find that your joy is in God. Don't punish yourself for your sins. Rejoice that you've turned from the sins. Well, that worked for a little while. Time passed. And because God's promises that he'd been given through all these prophets for that Messiah were still not being fulfilled in their lifetime, they began to doubt God's love. They began to doubt his justice because the wicked around them seemed to be prospering pretty good. And their attitude became... It doesn't matter how we live because God's gone on vacation. He doesn't even pay attention to us. So God sends them another prophet. This one's named Malachi. The very last prophet in the Old Testament. The very last book. God is going to send a messenger like Elijah to prepare his people for the arrival of the Messiah. Who is he talking about? John the Baptist. He ends the Old Testament with the prophecy about John the Baptist. This is how the Old Testament ends. These are the last words of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which one was the first gospel to be written? Of the four gospels, which was the first one written? Mark. How does the book of Mark begin? John the Baptist. The Old Testament ends with John the Baptist. The New Testament begins with John the Baptist. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.